Welcome to After Hours with Dr. Sigaloff, where he can share ideas and thoughts with you. He gets to the heart of the issue so that you can find the truth. The views and opinions expressed are his and do not represent the U.S. Army, DOD, nor the U.S. government. Dr. Sigaloff was either off-duty or on approved leave, and Dr. Sigaloff was not in uniform at the time of recording. Now, to Dr. Sigaloff. All right, well, thank you for joining me again. I have a wonderful guest that I'm very excited to tell you about. But before we get that started, I want to say thank you to all my Patreon supporters. Y'all have been very helpful in encouraging me, both monetarily and just spiritually, just giving me encouragement. I want to thank Shell Pace at $50. We have Sam and Angela Shelke at the $20.20 level. We have the Plandemic Reprimando, which is $17.76 a month with Linda Perry Ty. The Self-Made $10 level with Katie and Kevin. We have the $5 tier, Refined Not Burned, with Emmy, Joe, Pat and Bev, PJ, Rebecca, Darrell. We have the Courage is Contagious level at $1 a month with Amanda, Jay, and Spetsnasty. Thank you so much for, for being willing to commit money when time is so tough and money is so hard right now. I want to thank you very much for that. Now for my guest. This is a true pleasure. I didn't really know much about Dr. Peter Bregan until re really into well into this whole COVID debacle that's going on. But this isn't new for him. This type of fight is not new for him. He's He's been doing this, going against the big dogs, helping the underdog, helping the, the downtrodden since high school, I just found out, really. He'd you know, hold people accountable who are trying to beat up his friends. But, uh, but really, truly, he is the giant that most of us shoulders we're standing on and we may not even know it. And I encourage you to go check out his story because we're not going to be able to get into the entire story. But we're going to hear snippets of his, of his experience and the troubles and the tribulations and the trials that he's gone through in the past that has steeled him for now and that we can look back to as motivation to get through those hard times. Sir, it's, it's a pleasure to have you on. Well, I'm really getting to know you. I think I've interviewed you twice now, haven't I, Sam? Yes, sir. And it's been my pleasure every time. Now, <laughs> and I'd certainly, <clears throat> folks, I think he's a great person to contribute some sustenance toward. He's a <clears throat> real fighter for our rights and it's a good man, good man. I can sort of figure out how when I was very young, I grew up, it's as if God set it up. He had, the, you know, he, he had this genetically Jewish little boy being born and being born into kind of a, a, a new middle class family. My father came over when he was nine and my mother was born here, but her father came over and not out of great circumstances. From basically from Poland, the not Warsaw, but what were the shtetls, the little villages, many of which no longer exist right after World War II. When they did an inventory with people of where did you come from, they began to find all kinds of little Jewish villages, small towns that did not exist anymore. And if you go to Hashem, which is the Holocaust Museum of Israel, they have this amazing display of the twinkling lights of the villages that are gone. They're like stars in the sky. I hope I'm remembering that accurately. That's from decades ago that I saw that. And I came into the world and born into a community that was nouveau riche. They all moved out from Brooklyn and from New Jersey and some from Manhattan to live on the South Shore of Long Island. Most of the people were reasonably well off. My parents were at the time middle class. 
But by the time I went to college, my dad was the controller of 20th Century Fox. So he really rose up in the New York City business world, which is where the business offices of Fox were. I'm the second child, and I think that uh, my mother felt overwhelmed with raising children. Family background was really, really quite terrible. And uh, my dad had been ripped away from his father and brought to the U.S. when he was nine, so he didn't have a good idea about all that stuff. And so they, even though we lived in a duplex, not, not in a mansion, they brought a black child up from Georgia. Her name was literally Bessie, like Bessie Smith, the great singer. And I believe she was 16 when she arrived and 20 when she left. And she raised me in a duplex. <laughs> I lived in a small room with her, basically. And I know that I identified with her, not my parents, for the first four years of my life. And when they discovered, I lost my complete memory for her until I had a dream in my 30s with my mother using the N-word and saying, you love that person more than you love your own mother. And I'm imagining being in a crib and hearing these words. And I then remembered Betsy. <laughs> and I actually eventually found her and got to meet her. And uh, she'd been in touch with the rest of the family after she left us when I was four, or was probably, probably driven out. Well, after that happened, actually, I refused to eat for the white folks. And they were, they were forced, I think, I think they, they must have sent the sheriff to her in Brooklyn or something, but I think she left her husband, certainly her husband-to-be, and came back and stayed another several months until kindergarten started. And then she left again. So my first act of rebellion was to refuse to eat for the white folks. I remember Bessie defending me. I remember Bessie sort of being my guardian. It's almost like a reverse Moses story. Yeah, that's interesting. It is. It's like I'm I'm found in the in the bulrushes, but I've been put there and by my parents. That's <laughs> well, I mean that that's mind blowing. But anyway, Moses, I am not, and I I grew up with a critical eye of what was going on around me, and I grew up really quite depressed. I was not particularly outstanding. And then when I was 12 or so, they didn't like to have me around in the summers. It was nice to have their, the firstborn around, but I didn't seem to fit in. And they sent me to Boy Scout camp. And the Boy Scout camp was actually a place for troubled kids. I wasn't a troubled kid. I was you know, doing reasonably good and everything. And I, I made a best friend at camp. His name was Richard Tilly, if any of his relatives are around. And he and I really had fun together. And somehow or other, we ended up, before the night I left, because I, I really, really had to leave the camp. It was so horrible. I, I was carrying a hunting knife to prevent a very large person from bullying me from New York City. Very poor person, literally carrying a hunting knife. And since it was Boy Scout camp, I could get away with it. But it was a pretty big hunting knife. I'm not even sure where I got it. And it was a strange upbringing for, for a Jewish boy. And when I got back, my mother, who really was not a very sensitive person, was reading a local Newsday. I have not been able to find this article. But it would, would have been 30, 1936, I'm born. It would have been sometime about 40, maybe. And it was, she said, somebody died at camp of polio. Well, I'd been wrestling with Richard Tilly, I think in our skivvies in front of the other boys. 
two days before he died. And the, the sense of what the polio epidemics meant is really in many ways beyond COVID-19 in many ways, and especially for Jews. I think we viewed it as a kind of pogrom. I think my mother thought it was a disease that Goyim set upon us. It was, you know, it was during, my God, it's actually during World War II and the Holocaust, which I never actually put that together. That would have, well, from born in 36, and we're talking about 46, so it's three years after the Holocaust became known, widely known, 1944. This is all new, you can say I have not put this together in this, this way before. And she called the, she was very, very upset and like angry at God. She was not being sympathetic. And she called our, our GP, who told her that <clears throat> he couldn't do anything about it. If, he, if I got a cold and a sore throat, to give him a call. My mother got off the phone cursing him. And so I went to bed that night. Bessie had taught me about God. There was just nothing about God in my upbringing at all. Very secular. And so I prayed to God, and I told him that if he let me live to be 16, I'd be the best little boy in the world. <laughs> the beginning of a reformer. <clears throat> now I enter the sixth grade, and... I matured earlier than, than the other kids, mostly physically, sexually earlier. But all of a sudden, I was a different person as adolescence hit. I was the fastest runner in the class. Suddenly, I'm an athlete. We're getting together with the two other schools that are feeding into the junior high we're going to. I'm the fastest runner in the, all the schools. All of a sudden, people know my name. I win the 100-yard dash. And I'm elected class president. And I do not understand any of this, but it continued, except being a great runner. Eventually, I was no longer that great a runner, but I was good. I was good enough to take fifth in the 100-yard dash of the entire county of Nassau in my CT year. So I got a point. And it's a funny point because I was short and kind of chubby. So I was a short, chubby kid who was just making it across the line because 100 yards for me was a very long distance. <laughs> I played football because I could get full speed in five strides. I was 5'4", with short legs, 5'4". So almost impossible to, to bring me down. My, my, my most important athletic event was I tried to tackle Jimmy Brown. Do you know who Jimmy Brown is? Jimmy Brown was, is probably the greatest runner in the history of the NFL, and he was at another high school. And uh, Jimmy Brown looked like an Adonis at the age of 18. And I do remember I actually held on to him. And then two other guys came and held on to him, and he took all three of us across the goal line. <laughs> and I'm guessing he's probably a foot taller or almost a foot taller than you? Oh, God, yeah, yeah. No, Jimmy, yeah, well, five foot. He was probably about, I think he was around six one. But really built like an Adonis. He, he was just amazing. It, it, certainly, it certainly kept me aware of my true size and strength, which was vastly overestimated in my mind. <laughs> when it came to defending myself with my friends. In senior year of high school, I actually wrote an editorial for our newspaper. I was out of the paper and about that if we kept building atomic bombs, we'd be fighting with sticks and stones in the war after that one. 
So I was thinking about these things very early on. And because in those days, young people didn't think about this stuff. We're talking about the 50s. You know, we didn't think about this stuff. And I actually got to read it on The Voice of America in New York. I went to New York City and, and read the editorial on The Voice of America. But the most interesting thing I did, because it's so unusual, was we had this teacher who was thought she was very, very intellectual. And so she did, in our senior year, those of us that were good students, we got to go to a special class that was set up combining history and literature, which sounded very interesting to me. And she taught it. She taught the combined history and literature course. And she did a mock trial of the North, of our having a war crimes trial against North Korean soldiers for pillaging and raping. So it's the North Korean soldiers. It was not, as I recall, their leaders. And I raised my hand and said, I'll defend them. This was, of course, quite bizarre to everybody in the class, I'm sure. And I went and I got, I had my dad and some other people pick up newspapers from the city. And I looked at all the rape going on and all the murder going on by young men. And I presented that as my evidence. And I argued that how could we hold young men responsible for doing atrocities under wartime, where they're taught to murder and destroy, and their leaders want them to, how could we hold them responsible when we have boys doing the same things in, a, in the land of the free without any war going on here? The teacher was quite actually angry at me. But I look back on that, and I have no idea where at my age I would have come up exactly with that, other than what I'm sort of telling you. I'm telling you most of what I know about how I would have gone in that direction. When I went to college, I was very afraid to go to Harvard. My best friend had gotten into Harvard already, and I had applied, and I was put on a waiting list. And our class was this amazing class of young Jewish kids who were stars. I've never been in a more interesting group of people until COVID-19, and the Christian equivalent of my young friends in a way, these young, vital, excited, wanting to do good things in the world youngsters back in 19, well, class graduated in 54, until, until the group I'm in now, the Freedom Fighters. I've never been in such an amazing group of people where I had so many friends that I could trust and believe in and, and, and feel really equal in, in, the, in the desire to, you know, do something worthwhile. And I happened to meet a man who would later become a lawyer, famous lawyer, and he was a, also at the beach club I was working at. We were locker boys, essentially, glorified locker boys. I had worked there for years. And he said to me, he told me he was going to Harvard, and I said, that's great. And I said, I said I'm on the waiting list. He said, how could you be on the waiting list? I said, I don't know. So he called the admissions people. He would later be a very, very important attorney, though I'm flagging on his name now, doing defense work. Think against McCarthy. Maybe that's not possible. He wouldn't have been grown up then yet. It was something. So he calls the admissions department. He says, well, he, he never came for an interview. He's on the waiting list because that's what we do when people come, just don't come. So I'd been afraid to go. And I didn't have parents who were involved enough with me to ask me about it. The only person that asked me about it. So I went to Harvard, and I got into Harvard, I think, that day that I was there. 
And so this school that had never put anybody into the Ivy League was so amazing. We had two kids at Harvard, we had somebody at Yale, we had somebody at MIT, we had women at the top women's schools. It was just this amazing generation. Well, I didn't know what I was going to do at Harvard. I told my dad I wanted to be a labor union leader. And he said, son, you can't come from a middle-class family and go to college and everything and become a labor leader. You'd have to be a laborer, I think. <laughs> so I'm searching for what, what can I do to make a contribution. And I got into a special program at Harvard on American history and literature. And by the way, for the two of us to get in, this was not a private school. This was a small public school. We probably had 110 kids in the class. One day I'm studying. I'd had a deep interest in psychology. I was already reading a lot of psychology on my own, mostly to just try to get my head straight. So I was reading Freud. I was reading Plato and Aristotle on my own. Things no, no people didn't do back then when you were my that age. Nowadays it wouldn't be so unusual, maybe. And a friend came by and said, "No, me and my brother are starting a volunteer program at the local state mental hospital." Now comes two other stories that I left out. When I was nine or ten, it was 1944 or early 45, we went to the family, we went to a family movie to watch. I don't know, remember what it was. And they had a, something called Movie Tone News then. And it came on first with a big booming voice and the news. And all of a sudden, there's the, the first videos that any of us had seen, certainly, a film, first film of the liberation of a Nazi extermination camp. And I suddenly saw Jewish people like me in heaps, dead heaps, hanging on to wires and looking out from them. And I didn't want to watch it. I put my head down and my mother's, my father went to make me look look up, and my mother said no, to he, you know, and they had a little argument, a brief argument, and my dad said he needs to watch this. Do you remember how old you were at this? He never spoke to me about it again. I would have been nine, maybe ten, somewhere right in there, 44, 45. That's dramatic for a nine-year-old. Incredible. I actually, not long after, I think, began to wonder... Certainly when I had a young girlfriend at age 12, 13, you know, whether they could take her away. I mean, it stayed with me that this could happen. I didn't have any big distinction in my mind. I wasn't old enough to understand America versus Germany and our principles and there's a, you know, great ocean between us, whatever. But I took it very personally and I began thinking even about what I would do. And I decided I would die before they did that to me. I'd take somebody with me, very young. And then this was this kind of thing that I think God was just exposing me. Then my Uncle Dutch came back from the war, one of those men who loved the war. He became an officer. It was going to go back to something fairly pedestrian. And he'd taken pictures of the torture chamber at one of these constant, really not concentration camps, or extermination camps. And he showed them to me, which should, should have put him in jail, I think. So I knew the worst of the worst of the worst imaginable pictures of it. And uh, when I went into the state mental hospital, 
I felt like I was walking into something close to what I'd seen. That that the people were so wretched, their conditions, the treatment was so callous. And this, I went to the with a few of the students to the women's violent ward. I don't know how they managed to get us into that. I, maybe they'd been given keys that early. And within a year, I was the leader of this program, two, three hundred people. And I convinced the, well, I'll tell you, I got to see, uh, it was so familiar to the nurses after a while. I spent two summers there that I got, I kept the keys they gave me. So I had my own keys to the hospital. I could go most places. And I got to see electroshock treatment and especially insulin coma. I want to ask if you were seeing this, because you just mentioned the electroshock therapy, and I didn't really know much about the insulin coma until I started studying some of your your videos. But frontal lobotomies, were you seeing that as well? Well, I saw the patients who'd been lobotomized. They never sat and they didn't even do surgical lobotomy. They shipped them off to probably Boston State Hospital, I think, to do the lobotomies at a bigger hospital. Not bigger, but more modern. You you have to wonder about consent. Were these patients able to... Oh, no, there's no consent in state hospital. No, no, there is no more consent in a state mental hospital than in a Nazi extermination camp. No, no difference. And I would use that information later on in, a, in an extremely important trial. I'll, I'll jump ahead, way ahead. It's 1972, and I've decided that I've had all my training at Harvard and Upstate Medical Center in New York, and I've done a, I've been a lieutenant commander in the U.S. Public Health Service as a, they called us consultants, full-time consultants, and I was at the National Institute of Mental Health, sort of the pinnacle of a career very early, and I realized there was not going to be a place for me in what I'd learned in the state mental hospital which is that the psychiatry is doing far more harm than good. And what we have to do, I was now a psychiatrist, the psychiatrist has really turned things around. And I realized I couldn't turn things around. Things had changed so much. So I better go back to the little bit to the original story. So I decided to become a psychiatrist. I started my first book, which was eventually published with four names on it because I had left and it was finished by some of the other volunteers. I published my first article, a speech I gave at Yale at a conference on volunteering. This is all this in college. I got to know the professors at Harvard because they were very interested in our program. And I set up a, a case aid program. And they didn't want to do this. They, they, they thought we would hurt the patients. And, I, and there was professional jealousy. The psychoanalysts never went to this. The Boston House psychoanalyst, the most famous psychoanalyst in the United States, they never went to the state mental hospital. They didn't want us. They protested our, quote, treating patients as students. And what we were doing was visiting. We were each get under my development. And they gave us 12 of our own patients that we could go visit when we came out. So it was acknowledged that they were our patients, they were our friends, our companions. We called ourselves companions. And we went out and talked to them. And we had about 15 students. And instead of hurting these patients, we got 12 out of 15 out of the hospital on follow-up for a year or two. 
And it made so clear to me that what people were missing was love and attention. Boy, did I learn that fast. I never got threatened on the back wards of the men's uh, place or the women's place. And I have to realize I'm walking around dressed like a college student and probably a, probably in a dress shirt, maybe, or some other, but clearly a, a college student. And I'm, as I said, despite my pretensions to glory and, and sports and self-defense, I was very not large. I never had anybody try to intimidate me. I never had anybody do anything but treat me with respect in four years. The scariest thing I had when a very large man came up to me and looked down at me and said, I smoke lucky strike, and proceeded on his way down the corridor. <laughs> it's so unusual, it stands out in my mind. And when we were there, the patients were much better to each other. The AIDS didn't come running out and hit anybody, which I did see happen. One occasion, eventually we had so many people going through the hospital that the abuse really fell, as best as we could tell from the nurses and everybody. But this program then, I also got turned into a full credit course. In the second year, I went to the head of the Department of Psychology, Robert White, and I told him about the program. He thought it was a great idea, and we set it up, and it became a credit seminar. So you had your own, for the second year, you had your own patient at the hospital, and you were getting a seminar about human relations. All this kind of thing could not be set up now, by the way, because everybody, all, stu all doctors are taught you can't talk to schizophrenia. can't talk to that disease. It's like talking to, you know, the plague or something. But there were more humanistic trends in psychiatry then than now. Far more. That's why I went in. I mean, I swear there was a communist psychiatry. There certainly was a socialist psychiatry. You could take a socialist psychiatry kind of a, of a residency. They called it community psychiatry. I didn't do that. I, I was very individually oriented even then. And I got through my training. And as I said, I moved on. And then I was in private practice. I wore jeans. This is 1968, with long hair, <laughs> and I uh, didn't own a suit. And, um, and all of a sudden, I'm looking through a psychiatric newspaper, and there's an article, lobotomies coming back. I'd seen lobotomized patients. Just, just imagine somebody who's been concussed nearly to death, had piece, enough pieces of brain taken out of them that they just didn't function anymore. And you could see a spark of life. I could see a spark of life in heavily lobotomized people. They would relate to me through it just a little bit, like fighting through a, like you're in a thunderstorm and you're trying to communicate or something. And I, I read about this. They'd had a big meeting in Copenhagen. I'm sure I had no idea what country Copenhagen was in. And I, I read about all these people and what they were doing. And I just thought to myself, now this has got to be stopped. It can't come back like it. The only reason it went out of favor was that the new drugs, the, the, the antipsychotic drugs, basically did a chemical lobotomy. And the doctors felt so much better because they need, didn't need a surgeon or they didn't need to be crazy like one of the psychiatrists, Walter Freeman, who did his own ice pick operations. He'd shock the person into a coma and then put an ice pick around their eye and through the very thin bone and swish it. You need a detail like that, folks. Human beings do this to each other. You must understand. To understand COVID-19, you must understand what I'm saying today. 
To understand globalism, you must understand what I'm saying today. This is why this whole story, Ginger and I could write the deepest dive, you know, COVID-19 and the global predators, we are the prey. Why I, we could together do this deepest dive into the harvest behind globalism, because I had this introduction. Eventually, I became a world expert for the drug companies against them, against the drug companies. So I had a lot of background before. So I had no idea what it would entail. To give a little detail there, on the, the man who did the ice pick lobotomies. Now, if I'm not mistaken, didn't he have a van? And didn't he just drive around? And didn't he brag about how many he could do in one day? Now, I, you know, I hate to be this graphic with the, the listener, but it's important to understand this. Yeah, he did all that. I knew a lot about him. Yeah. See, I became the first psychiatrist to ever stand up to him and to prepare to testify in court against him. I've got a lot of these little cute things in my background. But he died during just before the trial. I was all tooled up to go after him. And it was about a poor soul in Washington, D.C., where he was located and where I was located at the time. And she was so injured, she used to call any doctor she could to tell him that Walter Freeman had stolen her soul or something like that. It was really pitiful. And I think it was the suit was around her, as I remember. It's quite way back now. Yes, Freeman would actually stand up in an amphitheater with hundreds of doctors going up to the sky in the back of the amphitheater. He would bring the patient in. He would lay her out on the table give her one electroshock, which puts you into a <clears throat> severe coma. It's supposed to be not harmful to the brain. It's worse than a typical car crash concussion, actually. Each one is worse. <clears throat> the, and when the person was out, without sterilizing him, he would take an old-fashioned ice pick with a wooden handle, and he would pull back the eyelid of the person and find a way around the eye and then tap it, and the bone back there is, is, is very, I think it's the thinnest skull bone, and push it into the frontal lobes and swish it. He is known to have done it with both hands at once to show off. And then the person would gradually awaken from the ECT, in whatever condition they'd come in, and whether they came in smiling, whether they came in rageful, whether they came in frightened, they were changed. They no longer cared. And that's basically, to some degree, what all injury to the brain does. So bad enough, and you end up, and but you still are sentient in some ways. You don't care. And unfortunately, I think we're seeing some of this of the COVID-19 vaccines where people are beginning to look like that. Some people, they don't care as much. No one ever stood up to Freeman in public until this little guy. It was pretty, I'm trying to remember it, it's the, where it is in the whole chronology of so many things that I did do. <clears throat> but as I said, we could not go ahead with the trial. But I was in the middle then of a whole campaign against psychosurgery. I thought I would get some support from some well-known physicians or psychiatrists. I did not. 
there was a couple of leftist psychiatrists who were marginal in the in the establishment who supported me and maybe three or four others who might have lent some support but would not do it in public but i got the support of congressman lewis stokes and congressman ron dellums and I got the support of my own senator. I went to him and he said, this sounds awful. He was a conservative. He said, this sounds awful. This sounds immoral. I will help you. And he did. I went to the Black Caucus and told them they were doing it to little children in Tennessee and, excuse me, at the University of Mississippi. And that was the only place I got any cooperation from a psychiatrist in the establishment. I called up the director, the chairman. This is very early in, the, in this whole thing because I was mostly upset. You can imagine with my upbringing, which I probably did not yet remember, <laughs> did not recall that childhood upbringing. Let's see. Yeah, somewhere along that area, I began to remember it. But what mostly, one of the main things that motivated me to go after the psychosurgeons was when I found out they were doing it to four and five-year-olds. <laughs> Sound familiar? Black children in a segregated institution. It was one of the few scientific series that never mentioned the race of people. It was so interesting. It was made me very suspicious because you almost always put down the race. You know, white, 49-year-old, divorced, married, whatever. Two or three words about each patient. These are just children. And I called a lawyer down there who was a poverty kind of lawyer. We used to have poverty programs with lawyers that were funded by the state and the Fed. And I, I said, could you go into this institution? Maybe we could somehow find out what the race were of these kids. He said, I can tell you right now, Doc, it's a segregated institution. And he'd take the kids out of the institution and bring them to the University of Mississippi in Jackson, not Old Miss. Then I didn't know the difference, so I had to learn that. That's not all Miss. It was the University of Mississippi and Jackson. And he'd operate on them and put multiple electrodes in their heads and leave them in permanently, dangling like braids. He'd toy with them, and sometimes he'd stimulate, sometimes he'd burn a little hole. I wanted to stop that man so bad, and I did. I stopped every known psychosurgery project in the United States at that time before I was done, and a number of them around the world. We still have one or two cooking away. I think Harvard may still have one or Brown, but they don't talk much. That's the same stuff that Mengele was doing. I don't know that he ever put electrodes in the child's head. He may not have because the Nazis thought lobotomy made useless eaters. Isn't that something? So it wasn't even as bad. So the Nazis were not doing that because they were afraid it could keep you from working. And we, here we are doing worse. Yeah, that's right. Make you a, make you a useless eater, which it kind of does do, but you're not useless. There's still a person inside. But they did love electroshock, and they did electroshock experiments. <clears throat> and a guy named Robert Lifton, who wrote a book on Nazi psychiatrists have written articles, a big article about that. He actually said the one thing you could say for the, for the German psychiatrist, the Nazi psychiatrist, was they did experiments on ECT. That was the one good thing they did. Can you imagine that? How corrupt our profession is that a, that a, a liberal, famous psychiatrist could get away with saying that in the book, that there was one good thing they did was 
Electric shock experiments? Jesus. So where am I with all of this? I mentioned that the state hospitals are very similar to the concentration camps. Well, in 1972 and 73, I was the expert, the main, there were many experts, but I was the key expert for a trial against psychosurgery in a state mental hospital in Michigan. And you can look it up. You can find it on my website. You can find this a lot of this on my website. I did a ch good chapter on it in a book called The War Against Children of Color. But you don't really need to go into that misery. The And I met Ginger at that trial. She was with the ACLU, and she picked me up at the airport, and I fell in love with her. And as a lot, everybody who's my friend knows, I fell in love with her, and I got so frightened that I went home, told my wife that I'd fallen in love, we got separated, eventually divorced, and I never told Ginger. <laughs> Ten years I didn't tell Ginger that I'd fallen in love with her. I was so scared. <laughs> and then God put us together in the weirdest way ten years later, and on the day I asked her to marry me, within two hours, and we've been together ever since. But uh, Ginger's there. It's a momentous time. And so they had already prepped me, and they were worried about other experts. And so I had dinner with Ginger before. And then the next day, Friday, I went to do my testimony. And the uh, Ginger with me. And she was, she glowed. She was a, she was, she's always just been something, something that changes my life. And I brought her along and she's standing with me and, and Gabe Kamowitz comes up and says, oh, those guys, and he curses and all. He says, you know what they're going to do? They have now postponed your testimony by, by just bringing up all kinds of nonsense so that you'll have to begin in the afternoon. And that means you'll have to, you, you'll finish Friday afternoon, and then they can take the whole weekend to go over your testimony with the surgeons. I don't think any of the surgeons wanted to come hear me. So... They, they were in this interesting position where they just managed to jockey it so that when my testimony was over, it'd be the end of the day. I said, Gabe, I, I can testify on a whole new stuff I never told you about. He said, how can you create a testimony? We have 15 minutes. Lunch, the lunch is over. And you're going on the stand. I said, I'll do a history of psychiatry, and I'll talk about Nuremberg Code. And at least try to set it up for you so you can apply the Nuremberg Code to these state mental hospitals because the, because the people have no more freedom in, in a state mental hospital than they do in a concentration or extermination camp. They have no more freedom. And by the way, the percentage of deaths is darn near as high as they were in the death camps that were created in the state mental hospitals. And I said, you know, here's five questions. Just keep asking me stuff about, well, tell me some more about what happened to Dr. Bregan. So I testified all afternoon about the state mental hospital system in which this patient was supposedly giving consent. And it was a key point for the judges. It was a three-judge panel when they came back and said that you could not possibly give consent to psychosurgery in a state mental hospital because psychosurgery, the hospitals were overwhelming, but also the surgery destroyed the human capacity. There's two things that I was arguing. So that's about where I was. That's the beginning of it all. 
And I've been putting together the pieces ever so ever since. I can tell you that the attack I came under for going against psychosurgery shocked me. I didn't think I'd be attacked for going against lobotomy and psychosurgery. I got amazing support from women's groups because the majority of people were women, not children. I got good support from African-American groups. I got support from Congress, which I would never get now, but not from the medical profession, except for some people who are taking stands on one thing or another, but not in psychiatry, and from a few psychiatrists who, you know, they'd be there for me to vouch for me, maybe, at that time. Later, there were a lot who vouched for me when I, I, I needed it later, but Basically, this was just me working with as many people as I could, and it's before Ginger. You know, there's a there's a, a Peter who's a BG, and before Ginger, <laughs> an age AG after Ginger. We've been together for forty years, but this is sixty years or whatever ago. The there were some breakthroughs. The AMA published an article by me. I, a mother brought her told me to, that she'd heard about me and and her son, and I'd been talking, writing about him, and she heard I'd been writing about him and how they harmed him, but that while they were claiming he was a cure, and she said, but you have no idea how much they damaged him. They made my son into a vegetable, and they're, and they're claiming he's a cure from what your, your quote you were, you were giving. And I went to see him, and they literally had turned a fairly ordinary engineer who had some marital conflicts and who got referred to them they worked him up, and they did the surgery on him, and they made him into a helpless psychotic. Totally, totally destroyed his, his capacities. And that's what he was when I met him. He was sitting with a tent of uh, newspaper over him, lying with it, on leave for the day or two with his mom from the local VA. And, and he said to me, you know, they've stolen my brain, but I have an IQ of 180. And, then he wouldn't say much again for a while, and it was just really a pitiful situation, a heartbreaking situation. And I wrote him up with the mother's permission, and that was a part of shutting down these projects. I shut down the Harvard project with the work I was doing. And I found out that they were getting special secret-like funding from NI, from Congress. They got Congress to give the 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 leader of this project, which was probably the strongest, one of the strongest men in the world medicine, William Sweet, he was the leader of the neurosurgery at Mass General, a big Harvard hospital. And I was going after him and his projects. And he actually had a f private foundation he had set up with money from the Justice Department and money from NIMH. Why Justice Department? Because he was telling people that ghetto rioters needed lobotomies, needed psychosurgery, would cure them. They were abnormal. They weren't ordinary black people. They were abnormal. So then that racism issue, which again, from my childhood, you could see how that would, how that would touch me. The, uh, let me take a breath. Let me see, I can just about see you. You're blurring in and out. Why don't I take a breath and why don't you say a few words? Well, one thing that I, I noticed in what you were describing with these lobotomies, it seems that you know, we were doing worse things than, than I, well, some worse things, right? The, the atrocities in those death camps were horrible, awful, terrible things. But we were doing, we were supposed to be this 
this shining tower, this beacon of light that was judging the world on rules that are written on men's heart. And, and we should have, they should have known better. And here we're doing the same things, just as terrible things, you know, slightly different, but just as terrible. And, and now that that's gone, we see the psychiatry world doing the same thing to children now with transgenderism. And it's, it's absolutely sickening to see how they're destroying lives of children who are incapable of making these informed decisions. They're taking away all of their reproductivity for the rest of their life, and they can never go back. And if they do go back, it's a, it's a terrible existence because everything in their body has changed. And it's, it's the same playbook. Yes, and there, there's another thing they've been doing, which I attacked <clears throat> just before COVID started, and it seemed like it was shut down. But they've, it was my last project against psychiatry at that time, because then COVID hit. They have a project called Monarch, you can look it up, where they put a cap, no, they put electrodes on the foreheads of children overnight, kids diagnosed ADHD, which means a normal child. These are normal children. You put, I mean, they don't think they're normal, but believe me, they're normal. They're usually the youngest in the class. <laughs> That's one of their characteristics. The And they put electrodes on their forehead and stimulate their brains overnight. And the electricity is going back up the trigeminal nerve, which is mostly an, a nerve that is sending impulses down. That's most of what it does. Like make your chump and stuff has some coming back up too, and they're taking an electric hammer up the biology meant to send down subtle orchestrated impulses through the nerve system. They're smashing back up the brain with these electrical pulses that are with that are are you know bang bang bang. They're not anything the brain can deal with. And they did. They had very few children in the trials. Even though then, the trials produced a lot of adverse effects. But this, is, this, this gets approved by an even worse part of the FDA than the drug part. This is the part that, that approves the machines. And this, this, is the, this is the group that supports the psychosurgeons by never, never asking them to prove or any safety and effectiveness for their lobotomies. This is the group that, that let a psychoelectroshock go without approval at all until just before, again, COVID. I was in a, tri I was in a trial and against electroshock. Company, manufacturer, was like, I think this was, finally came out in 2020, very early, but it was probably 2019, and they did a summary judgment. They asked the judge to dismiss the case on the grounds there's no evidence anywhere that shock treatment causes harm to the brain. So my job was to write a really good essay on electroshock brain damage. The judge read it, and he said that there was sufficient scientific evidence presented to him to make it a jury question. This trial was going to the jury. We're going to go to trial. We're going to go to trial. And within two days, the drug company sent a whole new thing, a whole new list of adverse effects to the FDA, quoted textbooks that admitted to the probability of brain damage and the certainty of memory loss, and put in their 
in there that went along with the machine that Doctors Beware was on you to know and to inform people about the dangers. So this was like a huge victory, followed within a week by the FDA approving ECT for the first time. The coordinated defense. I mean, folks, don't get frustrated when you don't make a lot of progress. I'm an expert at it. We go forward, they jump. When I was in med school, I got to hang out in a closed psych ward for a little while. Not not as a patient, as a med student. And they had one patient that would get ECT done. I had no idea it wasn't FDA until right now. FDA approved until right now. Wow. That was back in 2000. And now um, it's only 10. approved for, I think, catatonia. It, yeah. Now they approve it for catatonia and I think severe depression that's not amenable to any other treatment options or something. They still have never tested. It's untested. Because the tests that are done occasionally are so bad, the results. They're either lying, cheating, and clearly can't approve the study, or the damage is so bad to animals. They gave up studying the damage to animals in 1954 because they were getting such horrendous results from large animals. And interestingly enough, I, I talked to a very thoughtful psychiatrist whom I just met a while back, and he said, well, I don't know much about ECT, but haven't they, haven't they made it much safer than it used to be? Now, he's a very smart man. Now, he wasn't going to refer people, but uh, I hope, but he, he thought it was safer than it used to be. Well, in the past, you would, back in, say, 1948 or 1954 or 55, you'd give shock treatment, started in 38, you could give a convulsion usually with a 100 amp, milliamps, 100 milliamps for a split second, maybe 0.1.5. Now the machines don't allow you to give anything less than 800, eight times the dose it usually takes to cause a convulsion. You can't even tighter back like they used to, trying to give the least possible amps. They tell you, 800 or 900, the machines are set. And instead of allowing maybe your choice of going up to, to a half a second to give the jolt, you can give it for eight seconds now. You, the new machines, are like a sledgehammer compared to a bang with a thimble. But again, so you see how it wasn't too hard for me and Ginger, because Ginger worked with me and all this stuff. Not too hard for us to begin to see through Anthony Fauci in five minutes and begin to realize there's a real horror story behind all this. Because we knew the pharmaceutical industry. When I was, I was back in 1994, I was made the sole scientific expert for all the suits against Eli Lilly appointed by a consortium of attorneys. They all had suits approved by a federal judge in Indiana, where Eli Lilly is. And I had access to everything that they were supposed to give me to read, which I did read, and became the first person to really look at their control clinical trials and other stuff like that. God knows what they withheld, even though it was illegal to withhold anything. Um, but the attacks on me then went really up, really up. 
And that's when I was zeroed out. That's when I went from being on Oprah six or eight, six times or soon after, and from being on Larry King Live in 2020 and 60 Minutes and everything you could imagine I was on, talking about the risks of psychiatry. Well, the drug companies moved in then. They got the right to advertise on TV. And with that cudgel, I gradually was removed from giving any, you know, appearing on any major TV. The last couple of places I appeared on were The Factor and Hannity and then nothing. That was a few years ago. Now I get on the conservative press all the time. So we were prepared for a lot of different things, which everybody now is kind of new to. And in some ways, they have, you know, short of actually killing us, they couldn't do a lot because we had already been pushed out of the establishment. We had already established ourselves very separately, our own income. We had weathered an attack on our license. When Ginger was with me, she organized the attack. They were so beaten and bleeding by the time Ginger got through with them on the press and the press for taking away my freedom of speech on Oprah Winfrey that they apologized to us and admitted it was a free speech issue. I hope someday I can see that vindication. Oh, God. No, it's around somewhere. They thanked me for my contributions to mental health and state of Maryland. And that was after the commissioner said that he personally was interested in this particular case against Bregan. He was following it. Then he decided he didn't want to follow it anymore. And Ginger got the New York Times writing stories about it. But you couldn't do that now. Folks, things have really closed down since then. Well, I mean, I don't know what to do. I could talk a lot, lot more. Maybe we should do another show later on or something, or should I take a breath or you ask me some questions? I think we should do definitely do another show, and I, I, I want to be respectful of your time, and I thank you so much for coming on. But it's, it's amazing how all of us are standing on the shoulders of giants, even if they're not actually terribly tall. And it's, it's you, sir, and you know, people of, of your generation. Very sturdy. Very sturdy. Very stout. And I... I Thank the dear Lord that you've already, you know, trailblazed this trail for us and that you're still here with us helping us fight this because we we need all the help we can. And it's, and especially for the people that, let's say, got the shot because they were tricked, there's forgiveness at the foot of Jesus. Or if you're you're Jewish, there's there's forgiveness at, at the foot of God. There, whatever faith you are, there's forgiveness. You don't need to get more. You need to join on the side of freedom. We're not on, God's not on our side. We're on God's side fighting for freedom. And if you notice this entire time, everything he's, Dr. Bregan has talked about is fighting for the underdog, for individual freedom. And that's exactly what's straight from the Bible. You know, Adam and Eve stood naked before God. They were equal and they were bare naked. There was nothing preventing them from, from being exposed to God. Because if you look at God as the law, they, they had to be judged by the law. They had to be judged by God. And when they did not follow the rules, they were kicked out. And then that puts us in the place we are today. And, and so it's important to, to bring it back to that, that we're all children of God and there is forgiveness and there is, there is that forgiveness at, at the foot of the cross. Now, our fight is not against flesh and blood. It's against the rulers and principalities of darkness in this un, unseen realm. But people who have done these horrible, terrible things, they will need to stand before trial. 
either on this earth, hopefully, in a legal and, and proper manner, or when they meet their maker. But there will be, there will be justice at some point. Thank you so much for joining me. Yes. Amen. 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 Let me, I just had a thought about my next show because there's something I've never done, which is talk in detail about my own experience with the attacks on me and also how to win. To really focus, this is kind of an amalgam of me and my thoughts, but maybe we could focus on attacks and counterattacks. And what do we need to do to win? What have I learned about winning? And and the unfortunate part, at least I'm seeing, is being right and winning is not a huge victory because I prayed to God every day I was wrong. And unfortunately, we see every single day that I was more right than I wanted to be. And it's everything is much worse than I ever imagined. Oh, God, yeah. And it, it's no... It's no feather in my cap to yeah. be right. Well, that, that is, that's really true. I'll leave you with just a, let me put a little point on that. You know, you were talking about America was doing worse things and, or bad things. The, the United States was way ahead of Hitler on doing clinical sterilization, mass sterilizations. And we had such powerful advocates for sterilizing the poor, the mentally ill, the retarded, and so on that groups of Americans went to talk with Hitler's psychiatrist, who was Ernst Rudin, his official psychiatrist, and with Hitler, and to tell him, look what we've done. You can write sterilization laws. You can get started toward euthanasia with the sterilization laws. So we literally brought security to Hitler and that we, we the, our, our leadership reassured him he'd get no flack from America. And then one last tidbit. In 1941, the American Psychiatric Association, at the time that the euthanasia murders of children were beginning in, in Germany, held a debate on what to do about five-year-old children up to age who became five who were mentally retarded. They had only two alternatives in the debate, murder them or sterilize them. The American Psychiatric Association afterward wrote an editorial supporting the murderers. And now I think about it a little differently than I did then because I've been thinking a lot about mass murder. That was an editorial in favor of mass murder. All children who reach the age of five or have reached the age of five, that's mass murder. That was the association I belonged to. And that spirit lives on. I, I belong against their will, believe, believe me. <laughs> and that spirit goes on. The, the globalists are all eugenicists. When at the end of the war, the Operation Paperclip brought those same people, the exact same people, the people that were in SS, the people that were Nazis, brought them back to America to run our secret operations. Not all of them, many of them. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. 
And now the globalists. Remember, the globalists are basically more favorable toward Marxism and China than toward the U.S., so that should tell you a lot. And if you wonder if they could possibly want to commit mass murder with the with vaccines, yes, they certainly could. They're eugenicists, and that leads to euthanasia. They've made clear that most of humanity is dispensable. Yes, they could do mass murder. And people have been doing mass murder since civilization began. It won't be anything new when you realize what's going on. That's it. Thank you, sir. And I just want to say that I, I pray every day that we're not on the verge of the largest mass murder ever seen in human history. I think we're on the precipice of that that graph that's about to shoot up, and I, I pray I'm wrong every day, and I hope all the listeners also pray that, that I'm wrong. But with that, there is redemption at the foot of Jesus. And God bless you, sir. Thank you so much for coming on, and I, I'd love to have you on. Yeah. The human body is, I want to give a little hope on top of that. Human body is amazingly resilient. The mammal in us serves us well at times that surrounds us, the mammal we live in. <laughs> the human body is very resilient. And, and I do think that there are divine interventions and we'll just kind of hope. And, and some of the things you can do to help yourself and to help give a little more hope is eat right and listen to some of my podcasts about how to eat listen to episode 54 with me and dr Merritt, and there may if there's a way that we think you can get this out of your system that may be it so i encourage the listener to go listen to those because there is hope there's forgiveness but there's also hope for your body thank you sir god bless you thank you sam ziglov thank you so much doctor thank you so much Just a reminder for everyone out there, duty uniform of the day, the full armor of God, let's all make courage more contagious than fear.